Why do you support refugees? I support refugees because my family were refugees. I support refugees because we are all God's children and we all deserve a safe place to grow in God's love. I support refugees because God made us all in God's image. I support refugees because I am a legal guardian of a minor asylee named Carol from Burundi. I support refugees because my Lord was a refugee. Because I welcome and I love my neighbor. Hi, and welcome to Hometown, a podcast from Episcopal Migration Ministries. I'm Kendall Martin. And I'm Allison Duval. Thank you for joining us for today's episode. We are pleased to share the recording from our June 9th webinar, Episcopal Action on DACA Week, which was the first webinar in our series, Love God, Love Neighbor, Episcopal Month of Action. In partnership with the Episcopal Church Office of Government Relations, EMM is offering three weeks of webinars geared toward action for DACA, refugee resettlement, and asylum. In today's webinar recording, we came together to pray, hear from DACA recipients, and find out ways we can take action to support DREAMers. We are so grateful to everyone who came together to advocate for protection and safety for DACA recipients. And we want to extend our thanks to all of the amazing panelists and presenters who joined us. You'll hear them introduce themselves momentarily at the beginning of the webinar. We hope you enjoy today's recording of the DACA Action webinar and our move to take action. Welcome. We're so glad that you're here for today's webinar, Episcopal Action on DACA. This is the first in a three-part series called Love God, Love Neighbor, Advocacy in Action. Thanks so much, Kendall. So we are so glad that you all are here this week, and we're grateful to have panelists and presenters with us who will acknowledge the importance of coming together to advocate for protections for dreamers in the midst of important movements for social justice and um, and change in our country. So thank you for taking time out of this week and out of this time to be with us. As we start the webinar, we'll introduce our panelists and presenters, and then we will go into a time of prayer and reflection. From that, we will have two rounds of conversation. First, a conversation with two DACA recipients who've graciously given up their time to speak with us today, and a second conversation with the ethnic missionaries from the Episcopal Church, who will speak about what we as a church at all levels can be doing in this time. Then we'll move into background on DACA and give updates on the current status and why it is so critical that we raise our voices to advocate for protections for dreamers in this moment. That will lead us into discussion on how we can all be advocates, a Q&A with all of our panelists and presenters, and then we will transition into a time to take action. And to start, I also wanted to acknowledge what Kendall mentioned at the beginning, that this is the first in a three-part series called Love God, Love Neighbor, Episcopal Month of Action. We originally had planned to do a really large fly-in days of advocacy in Washington, D.C. in June. However, the pandemic, of course, upset those plans. And we quickly transitioned to reorganizing this advocacy um, event into three webinars on protections for dreamers, refugee resettlement, and on protections, um, asylum protections. So we hope that this webinar you attend today will be the first for you. We hope that we'll see you back next Tuesday and then Tuesday, June 23rd as well. Rashad, over to you. Hello, everyone. I'm Rashad Thomas. I'm the policy advisor in the 
Episcopal Church's Office of Government Relations in Washington, D.C., joining you from my home in Maryland. I'm Kendall Martin. I'm the Communications Manager for Episcopal Migration Ministries, and I'm located in Richmond, Virginia. My name is Allison Duval. I'm the Manager for Church Relations and Engagement for Episcopal Migration Ministries, coming to you from my home in Lexington, Kentucky. And now I want to thank, again, our panelists for giving so much time and energy to making this webinar an important moment for all of us. Um, we are so grateful for your time and for your gifts and for your sharing. So I'm going to turn it over to our panelists. Um, Anthony, over to you. Thank you so much. Uh, I'm Anthony Guillen. I'm the Director for Ethnic Ministries and Missioner for Latino Hispanic Ministries. I'm coming to you from Ventura, California, my home. And um, I worship at all St. Andrews in Ohio. And um, my uh, position, well, uh, you'll meet the rest of our departments in just a moment. Um, someone? Greetings from Raleigh, North Carolina. Uh, I'm Samuel Borbon, the Associate Missioner for Latino Hispanic Ministries. Good afternoon. I'm Ron Bird. I'm greeting you from the great state of Michigan. I am the Missioner for Black Ministries. Hi everyone, my name is Vicki Jaguna. I am a DACA recipient and I currently reside in Boston and I go to St. Stephen's Episcopal Church. Thank you all. And I'm very um, grateful to our next panelist, um, as I am to all our panelists, the Reverend Nancy Frausto, who serves at St. Lucas San Lucas in California. So Nancy, I'm going to turn it over to you to lead us in a time of prayer and reflection. Thank you so very much. Let us pray. Loving and gracious God, as we continue to live in the uncertainty and fear of a pandemic that is changing the way of life, we lift up in prayer the 700,000 plus DACA recipients whose lives have been filled with uncertainty and fear long before this pandemic came into our lives. We lift up in prayer the hundreds of thousands of young people who were not of age and therefore could not apply for DACA and are now left out of the conversation. We pray for our Supreme Court as they take up the issue of DACA. Loving God, open their hearts to see that the lives of many young people who have adopted this country as their own are in their hands. Open their minds so that they might see that this is not just a political issue. This is a life and death issue. A life and death issue that will affect not just the lives of the young people, but the lives of many Americans. In a time where normality of life has been uprooted, loving God, let all people of faith see that this is an opportunity for our country to create a new normal with equity for all people. May all who believe in the love you give be courageous enough to stand up to those who are being affected by this decision. All this we pray in your name, amen. <sighs> I can't breathe. July 17, 2014, Eric Gardner was put on a chokehold by the New York Police Department for selling cigarettes. Eric repeated the phrase, I can't breathe 11 times. And after losing consciousness, was left on the sidewalk for seven minutes until an ambulance arrived. 
Six years later, the words, I can't breathe, have come back to hunt our consciousness. I can't breathe. George Floyd pleaded for his life as the Minneapolis police officer knelt on his neck for almost nine minutes. Protests have broken out in all 50 states and all around the world because it is obvious that something is wrong. Something has been wrong for a very long time. Beloved children of God are being murdered and the assailant is racism. And we as a society bear responsibility because for far too long, many have chosen to turn a blind eye as their neighbors suffocate under the weight of police brutality, racial injustice, and white supremacy. From George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, Eric Gardner, Michael Brown, Tamir Rice, Delonda Castile, Trayvon Martin, to Emmett Till, Cynthia Wesley, Carol Robertson, Eddie May Collins, Denise McMahon, and the two million Africans that died during the Middle Passage across the Atlantic. This land, this land from California to the New York Island, from the redwood forest to the Gulf Stream waters, this land is soaked with the blood of people dehumanized, victimized, and carted aside as disposable. This land might have been made for you and I, but from the moment it was stolen from the indigenous people and its beauty pillaged for the benefit of a few, this land has witnessed the terrors of people that people of color have endured. This land bears the stain of racism that rots and consumes. But this land, this land also carries the hope of a people willing to sacrifice and fight for the promise of justice. Now this webinar, this webinar is about the DACA program. But before we can talk about the program and the importance of it, we need to look at the history of this nation and how every person of color is linked to one another because we all suffer under the weight of a system designed to asphyxiate our dreams and our future. From its conception, the United States has followed the principle of manifest destiny. The idea that the United States was destined to be an Anglo-Saxon Protestant nation stretching from coast to coast. The idea that if you are an Anglo-Saxon Protestant, God has favored you is the excuse that many have needed to, for example, steal land that belongs to others, steal human beings, pack them in boats and use their labor to build a nation. Three, build borders and use military force in other countries to boast one superiority over others. Now that last one, that last one is an important one in this conversation. Those who have left their homeland did so because the United States played a role in the destruction 
poverty and violence of their country. The United States then sold itself to the world as a nation with unalienable rights of life, liberty, and justice for all. People come to this country for a piece of the American dream. Now, DACA recipients, we want to stay in this country because it's the only home we know. And it's a home we love. And it is because we love this country that we stand and we fight for justice. We do not want to be part of the fairy tale of an American dream. What we do want, we want to be part of building an American reality where one skin color is not probable cause. Where all children are free to achieve their dreams without the fear of racism cutting their lives short. DACA recipients. DACA recipients stand with our Black brothers and sisters in their proclamation that Black lives matter. Because their fight their fight is our fight. Their fight for freedom is our fight for liberation. We are linked together because the big bad monster of white supremacy does not care if you are black or brown because it sees us both as unworthy and inhuman. Manifest destiny ruled that God had chosen the Anglo-Saxon Protestant as superior. This idea, this idea still lives in our church to this day. So I ask all of you, people of faith, all of you, good Episcopalians, all of you, faithful Anglo Saxon Protestants, do you subscribe? to the lies or will you stand with the people ready to turn this country around? Will you use your faith to guide you to do what is right as people fight to stay alive, fight to stay in this country, fight for justice? Every DACA recipient, whether they realize it or not, we all have been living with a limited supply of air since the pro program was rescinded. Every DACA recipient wakes up wondering, is today the day my dreams come tumbling down? Is today the day that nine people decide my faith? You know, rumors have been going around that DACA will be permanently removed. Most of us are getting ready to receive those news because we are so sure it will probably happen. And many of us, many of us are trying to stay strong, but we need you to stand with us. We need to fight together to make sure that the future of this country is one of a blessing and not one cursed with deaths and deportations. 
We need you as it is your moral responsibility to walk the way of love. Now, this webinar is step one. What you learn here, take it, use it, and make a change. There is much pain in this world. So much pain in this country, right here, right now, when every day gives the possibility that a new hashtag means that someone else has died at the hands of white supremacy and racism. So we need all of you. We need all of you to remember that we are called. We are called to love God and love neighbor. Love your black neighbor. Love your immigrant neighbor. Love your poor neighbor. Love. Love is more than just a word or a feeling. Love is an action. So we are calling you to act, to use your privilege, to use your power, to use your voice, to use your body. Do that which our beloved, our sacred text has called us to do and stand with the oppressed, stand with the marginalized, stand with those that Jesus embraced at his own. So go, go and love and let us together bring this new reality of a country that really does belong to all of us a country we all care for, a country where the lives of people are not stolen because of the color of their skin or the language that they speak. We have a lot of work to do and we're counting on every single one of you to throw away the lies of manifest destiny and to bring in a new reality. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. We are going to transition now to our first roundtable conversation with you, Nancy, and with Vicki. Again, Thank you for being with us. So I'm going to turn it over to Rashad to start us off. Rashad, over to you. Yes. Um, thank you, Nancy, for your spiritual reflection. It was very moving. My first question for the two of you is, um, tell us about yourselves and your families. Um, where were you born and, and um, how did you come to the United States? So I'm the eldest of three. I have a younger brother and a younger sister. Um, I was born in Kenya in 1994, and I came to the U.S. when I was two years old. Um, my family is very uh, religious-based. My dad's a pastor, and my mom's a nurse. Um, so I grew up in the church and being super involved, um, and God has played a huge part in my life. Yes. Okay. So I came into this country when I was seven years old. I am also the oldest of three. Uh, my brother is also a DACA recipient. Uh, my youngest sister is a citizen. She was born here. 
Um, and we are a very close knit family. And um, I, as you can tell by the caller, <laughs> I am a priest in the Episcopal Church. I've been ordained now. Yesterday was my seventh year anniversary in the ordination of a deacon. So I have now been, I will be a pre, uh, or my anniversary to the priesthood will be in January, but seven years go by rather quickly. Thank you so much. And we'd love to hear what your family's life was like once they got to the United States, if they met people who were supportive and helped them in their journey getting um, settled into life here. Um, so when I came to the U.S., I was only two years old, so everything seemed normal to me. I didn't really understand what was going on. I was in a new environment. All I knew was that I was with my parents. So um, I went to school and I, I played with a bunch of kids and my life was so normal. I played sports and instruments and went to church camp and participated in many youth church events. And my family was uh, the ones that supported me most when I found out I was undocumented. Um, they knew the entire time, but I didn't find out until I was 18. And once I found out, they're like, okay, these are the steps we're going to take. This is what we're going to do. Um, and if you don't find a solution, we'll find something to help you, right? Um, so once I got my DACA, uh, my card to work and everything, I decided to go to school. And the Diocese of Massachusetts actually helped me with the grant to go to school. And my parents supported me to help me pay for school out of their pockets. And yeah, they're like the most supportive. My friends, they didn't really know. It wasn't something that I really told them. I wasn't really comfortable because it was still like a shaky time. It, it just, it just uh, started um, and people were like not sure if it's gonna last or like what are the rules of have, being a DACA recipient and things like that. So um, people didn't really know besides my family and people around that heard like rumors that I was undocumented, they weren't really positive. They were just waiting for me to, to hear that I was sent back to Kenya, you know? So um, yeah, that's, my life was pretty normal until DACA came, but yeah. Uh, so since I was seven, I have um, a bit more memories than my brother who was three at the time. Um, and unfortunately, when we got to the United States, uh, you know, people that had promised to help didn't. And my family and I, we were homeless for a while. So um, if you know L.A. at all, um, you know the area of Skid Row, and that's where there's a lot of homeless shelters and a lot of people, a lot of individuals without home. And I, I knew that, <laughs> that area rather well when I was a child. Um, and it wasn't until my youngest sister um, was born that my family was able to get some help from the government. And as a citizen, well, you know, um, my mom could apply for some programs and we were allowed to stay in a family shelter. And we lived in a shelter for a while and then they placed us um, in a program that would allow us to pay rent, that would help us pay rent. And that's when we ended up moving to another part of the city of LA. And it was there where my life became a little bit more stable. I was about 10 years old. So for the first three years in the United States, um, it was no bueno. <laughs> and it was rather difficult and sad. Um, but I will say in that time, my parents did their best to 
try to make a game out of everything for the children so we wouldn't really see or understand the pain um, that they were going through and the sacrifices that they had to make. But once we, once we found stable housing, that's when we actually found the Episcopal Church. And it was totally by mistake. My mom thought it was a Roman Catholic Church. I needed to make my first communion. We got there. Um, and years later, I'm an Episcopal priest, so you know, it happens. But <laughs> it was... Um, it was till that time when I hit about the age of 10, 11, that my life became a little bit more stable. And the church, um, All Saints, Todos Los Santos in Highland Park was my saving grace. It was my family's saving grace. Um, and it was through that church that years later when I discovered that I did not have a social security number that I could not apply for FAPSA, that I had to turn down my um, acceptance to universities, even though I got accepted to some really amazing places, that's when I started to discover what being undocumented really meant. Um, and, and while I'm not gonna lie, I went through a very angry stage because I thought everything I had worked through was down the drain. Um, it was my church and my priests that got me out of that funk and the church built a scholarship program that would allow me to continue on with higher education and then seminary. So the, the big support we definitely found with, with the church and then some beautiful angels along the way that, that led us to a place where we now find ourselves in a situation where my whole family has good jobs, good paying jobs, a roof over our heads, um, but we still remember what it was to be without a home and what it was to be hungry. We'd love to hear um, from both of you about your lives today, your, your family and friends today, your work, your academics, your aspirations, your ministry. Um, so Vicki, if you'll start us off, tell us about today. Um, my life today is pretty good. Uh, I just graduated with bachelor's in dental hygiene from a private college out here. And thank you. And um, I have a stable job. I have a great job currently. And I have a great support system with my friends and family. And I really do have plans on going back to my country and helping them with like oral health. I'm really big on that now since it's my profession. Um, I want to go back and help and educate people and kids and you know, oral health is, is tough out there. Like, it's not really as important as overall body health. So I want to, like, bring awareness to that. Um, and I just want to be able to travel and help people all over. And DACA is kind of stopping me right now from from traveling. So hopefully we find some some solutions for it. So, yeah. As I mentioned earlier, um, I have been ordained now seven years. I serve as the associate at St. Luke's in Long Beach, a sanctuary church where we are currently housing um, a refugee from Honduras and we are helping him get his life settled down. So um, my, life, uh, my life revolves around my vocation as a priest, my calling. And, and I have been blessed with a platform where I can use the privilege that a caller gives me to say things that others really don't want to hear and they have no choice but to hear because I'm in a pulpit um, but also it has given me the opportunity to 
to travel and talk to people and educate. And, and like I said in my reflection, it's not just about fighting for immigrants' rights, it's fighting for the dignity of every human being. Um, and I, I am so blessed to be able to do what I do and meet the people that I meet and work with some of the individuals who, who are fighting the same fight. So that, that, is, that is what I do. I do watch Netflix a little too much sometimes, but that's another story. <laughs> you and me both. <laughs> um, I, I know you've, you've all spoken um, about how, you know, the, your parishes and your diocese have, have helped you, um, which I think is absolutely wonderful. But um, I'd love to hear about how your faith has, um, has helped you through um, your life, basically. <laughs> My faith, I don't even know where to start. My faith has been everything. Like, without God, there's no way I would have, like, be able to stand strong and continue going, especially after I found out that I was undocumented. And and even now, when things are shaky, I just, my faith is everything. Like, I pray, I talk to God every day, and I ask Him for, for patience, for for peace in my mind and it's like it's a lot going on as you're going to school as you're working as you're doing everything you need to do with this huge cloud over your head about DACA not being able to continue so yeah my faith has been huge like going to church every Sunday having that supportive group with me uh, praying with my family praying with my friends like it's everything it's everything it's like my my foundation through this whole process Um, so even though I'm a priest, God and I sometimes have an on and off relationship. Um, and it's mostly on my part because uh, the injustice and the pain make it hard to keep your faith alive. Um, and that's where other people join, it, join me in my journey. Because when, I, when my faith is just struggling for whatever reason, um, God has always been so amazing to send people to my life that remind me that I'm not alone in the fight. And that is what feeds my faith. Um, and I, I've talked a little bit, I think in the other last webinar, I said a little bit about this, but yes, definitely my, my church, my, my, the church I grew up with, All Saints Highland Park, all the people I've met there. Um, in today's webinar, Father Anthony Guillen, the, the way that he has mentored me and pushed me has been amazing in my faith journey. Because again, it shows me I'm not alone. Uh, certain things that I see the church doing that I am amazed by is, for example, when my diocese, the Diocese of LA passed the resolution to be a sanctuary church. I never thought I would see the day where a diocese in the Episcopal church would, would vote the majority, I think there was only like one or two no's in the whole diocese. And of course I paid attention to those, but again, <laughs> um, but you know, like being able to, to proclaim our faith and our calling as Christians to do what is right uh, feeds my faith. I mean, other things that I would love to, to point out is, is stuff like um, the cathedral in Indianapolis 
when the children were being caged, what did they do? They, they, they did a visual of what it looked like, and it was the sacred family inside cages. The Diocese of San Joaquin did an amazing walk, a pilgrimage, where they walked for miles, showing, showing support for, for you know, people who are undocumented. And when I see those things on, on the days where I'm just having the roughest time because I just, I just feel like the world is against us, I see the church step up in those ways, make those calls. You know, webinars like this feed my faith to continue on this fight. Thank you so much, Nancy. Thank um, you, Nancy. I'd love to hear if there's anything that you wish Americans understood about Dr. Recipient. I apologize for my dog about DACA recipients and their experiences and their families' experience, if there's anything that you wish folks knew. Um, when it comes to DACA, people that are outside that don't know, though don't really know about DACA, I want them to understand that we're here to support and we're here to help and we pay taxes and we, we do everything else everyone else does in America. We just don't have a piece of paper to prove it. You know what I'm saying? So I want people to understand that we're not coming to America. We're not fighting to be here so we can leech off of what it has to offer. We're here because we found a better opportunity from wherever we came from, whatever country. We came here and there was an opportunity to get higher education, opportunity to have great housing, opportunity to do a whole bunch of things. And... I want people to understand that we are fighting because we just want a better life. That's all. We're not coming to take your jobs. We're not coming to do all this other nonsense, nonsense people have. We're just coming to have a better life and, and build a future for ourselves and, and, and our families. And, and I just want people to see DACA in a positive light than what people have been saying and all these things in the news and online. So yeah, I just want people to like, at least understand what we're going through and how it really is. Um, so in the last webinar, there was a young man in the, um, as a panelist who said something that has stuck with me. And it, that's that, um, that DACA recipients, most of us, we are called dreamers. And what this young man said, and I can't remember his name right now, but he was from Virginia. He said, we're not just dreamers, we're achievers. Because we have set our mind to something and most of us are achieving, achieving great things in our education, in our careers. So what I want people to know about DACA recipients is that all of us are doing extraordinary things, not necessarily to stay in this country, but because we are extraordinary people. We are people with many gifts. We are intellectuals. We are theologians. We are bringing amazing gifts into this country, which is our country. Another thing that I want people to know is that there's this misconception that, well, you should just apply to be a citizen. Well, you can't do that. It's not having DACA, does not give you a pathway to citizenship. DACA is good, but we need something better. DACA 
what DACA is doing is giving us a possibility to work in this country, to have a social security, to pay taxes, to contribute to the economy. But DACA does not give us the freedom to travel around the world like Vicky said she wants to do, like I want to do. You know, we need to ask a special permission to leave the country. And even if we get that special permission to leave the country, the immigration agent at the border has the right to turn us away and not let us back in. That's called an advanced parole. And, and that has been taken away now that the DACA is, has been going through all this, um, these issues and the Supreme Court has everything on hold. Another thing, there's so many people that did not make the cut line when DACA was rescinded. And there's thousands and thousands of kids coming out of high school that cannot apply for DACA that don't have a social security, they cannot legally work. So while DACA has been a gift, we still need a comprehensive immigration reform. Something that speaks to not just the dreamers, but our parents, our siblings. We need something that will be a gift to this country because immigrants are what make America great. Thank you both. Um, before we turn to our next round table, we wanted to open the floor to both of you. If there's anything else that you'd like to share, anything that you wish you had said. So Vicki, over to you. Um, I feel like uh, Nancy said it all. <laughs> she said everything I wanted to say. Um, she was definitely right about us being achievers and that we have so much to offer not only to this country but to the world honestly we just happen to be in this country and and DACA is like it's great I am very grateful for DACA I'm not gonna say anything bad about it I just wish it was more uh I just wish it was like a green card or a citizenship I just wish because I could do so much like I've done everything that I can now and DACA is just like that door that's like stopping me from continuing my progress. So um, yeah, I just want everyone to be supportive. And if you if you meet a DACA recipient, just hear their story, understand where they're coming from and just, um, uh, and just be, you know, open-minded to what they're going through. And that's all I have to say. Um. You know, something that I wish people, people would know is I wish everybody would have the opportunity to meet the amazing DACA recipients that I have met in my work. You know, people like Vicky who is here with us today. You know, I, I'm, I'm in awe by her because, you know, she could have said, I want to stay in this country to have a better life. But most of the thing that she has says is she wants to give back. She wants to go back to her country and help others also. Like, there's so many stories like her, so many wonderful people like her that want to be able to give back to this country, but to other places that want to make this world a better place. And I wish people would have the opportunity to really get to know the stories of all the DACA recipients, to know their struggles. You know, there's this, there's this idea that 
if you are not good enough, you shouldn't have DACA. That you know that you need to be like a master in I don't know like math or something, something I'm really bad at. You know that you have to have like this high degree and be like this genius. And while some of them are, not everybody is. They have other gifts. We have artists. We have amazing artists. You know, and every every single every single one of the DACA recipients has something to offer. Just like every single one of the citizens in this country has something to offer. Just give us an opportunity. Get to know the human in us. That's that's what I want people to know. Get to know our stories, get to know our struggles, get to know those dreams, get to know how we have worked our butts off, working horrible jobs. <laughs> to be able to get through our education, to pay our bills, get to know the amazing parents who now have children as citizens, and they're raising up those kids to be great people. So I, I definitely want to thank all of you who are here today and the work that you are doing, because you're allowing some of those stories to be heard um, and be known. And the thing is that we have so many amazing DACA recipients and dreamers in our congregations in the Episcopal Church. There's so many of us there. Get to know us. Um, and I guarantee you, you're going to be amazed. Just look at Vicky. You will be amazed. Thank you, Nancy. Nancy, And thank you, Vicky, so much. And um, I'm going to invite now our other panelists to turn their cameras on um, for the next conversation we wanted to have. And Nancy, the, the piece that you just mentioned about um, get to know um, DACA recipients, get to know the members of our congregations who have this status and who are seeking this protection and comprehensive immigration reform is so important. And that's really why we wanted to bring in Anthony, Samuel, Fred, and Ron into the conversation to speak to some of the pastoral considerations and like congregational considerations that we should all have in mind at this time. This webinar is really about um, the faith-based advocacy actions that we can all take, but we also are all members of the Episcopal Church, or many of us here are, and so we have considerations um, in the life of a faith community to take into account as well. So I wanted to open up that conversation and bring in our colleagues. So we know, actually, I just looked at the script. Kendall, you're the first person to ask the question, <laughs> so I'm going to turn it over to you. Sorry for hopping ahead. No worries, thanks. Um, so that we know many individuals and churches who are anxious to help um, to respond in this uncertain time and offer support to our siblings with DACA. So we'd love to hear how you believe the church can respond to this current moment. Um, and Anthony, I'm gonna have you start. Thank you, Kendall. Um, well, you know, both uh, Vicki and Nancy talked about, you know, the need for uh, the church for us to get to know them and to know their stories. And I think that that's a really, uh, that's, an, that's a, a really good place to start. Um, it would be great if we had already been doing that for a while. Um, as Nancy mentioned, you know, there's so many congregations, uh, Episcopal congregations and other churches, other denominations that have, you know, um, that have DACA recipients in their, in, in their midst. And um, because of the stigma of being a DACA recipient, a lot of folks are kind of incognito. I mean, they're, you know, they, you know, people don't know that they might be DACA recipients. And so, you know, there's a stigma. And, um, but 
because of what's coming up, uh, you know, the this decision that the Supreme Court will make um, could suddenly thrust these folks into the limelight. I mean, right in front of us, you know, there is a possibility. I mean, if the decision is not as we would hope and pray, you know, what happens? You know, um, we may only have a few weeks to get to know one another. Um, what, I mean, there, there's things that I, I would like to see the, you know, diocese and, and congregations having conversations right now, you know, um, community organizing, thinking about what can we do if DACA ends? What's going to happen to Vicky and Nancy, people that we know? What's going to happen to them? What can, what can I, what can we do um, to be supportive of them and their families? Um, you know, one of the realities in, in Latino Hispanic ministries is that everywhere I go, I mean, I don't think I've ever been to a congregation. There's uh, hundreds of Episcopal churches with Latinos. I don't think I've ever been to one that hasn't had at least one, um, you know, um, well, I wouldn't say at least one document recipient. I mean, a number of undocumented folks, uh, amongst them, many of them with DACA recipients. What, what are, and I'm sure those congregations are are thinking about and maybe planning on what they can do to respond. But what about all the other congregations that don't have anyone? They can also help. So one of the things that Samuel and I have been talking about is, uh, and we're planning to do, is to reach out to our, uh, to the, the bishops of Mexico, because we know that a lot of recipients are, are Mexican, um, to see what we might do together to be supportive. I mean, uh, I presume that if Nancy were to be sent out of the country, she would be sent to Mexico. Nancy's sharp and smart, and she'll find a place to land. But some of these other folks that are out there may not have the same, you know, network. You know, can the diocese in Mexico be better prepared to receive them, uh, to help them, to assist them? Uh, you know, does Vicky have somebody in, back in her country that will be there for her? You know, and, and all the other people that are out there. So, you know, I think the missioners can, can, can be helpful in that. Um, but I, I just think that uh, I would call on our churches and dioceses to to start making a plan now. Let's see what we can do. Now, obviously, if, if uh, I'm, I'm talking, I'm sorry, um, there's so many things to say. I'll, I'll, I'll stop here. And I'd like to, uh, uh, Kendall, go ahead and invite the next person. <laughs> Certainly. Thank you, Anthony. I'm going to turn it to Samuel now. Thank you, Kendall. Um, what can the church do? How can we respond? Um, I actually experienced a church, a congregation that was that is very active. In 2014, I started serving in St. Michael's and All Angels in Portland, Oregon. 
And a year before, this congregation had become uh, what they call IWC, an immigrant welcoming community. And two years later, they become a sanctuary. Um, and the reason, what I don't want to go into the their process, but what I take as a learning experience from St. Michael's was uh, what Nancy was saying, the connections. The reason that this happened, it's because people get connected. People are started. Um, the people from this morning service were able to meet the other uh, people that were coming to their later uh, services, and they started getting, getting connected. And that's what we call in the church evangelism, being able to reach those people that we haven't reached yet. And sometimes they're using our own buildings, and sometimes they're around our building, and, and that's where I think we can start. Um, just changing the concept, just changing DACA, changing a number of 700,000, and just changing that for a name, Nancy, and, and a face. And you will find so many smiles and so many dreams, so many people um, with great desires. And, and I think that's where we get the inspiration to, to advocate. So, so I will say that um, connection is important and changing concepts um, into names and, and faces. Thank you. Ron, I'm gonna move it to you now. Thank you, Kendall, um, very much. I wanna thank my colleagues too um, for, for, for their thoughts because many of my thoughts weave right in with what um, Father Anthony said and Father Samuel said. Um, first of all, I think we in the church have to call it what it is. It's racism, pure and simply it. We have to call it what it is, it's racism. Um, I think um, Nancy mentioned this earlier. We, all of us came from somewhere to this country. And some came by their own will and some came by force. But it's racism. And, and we know that's being perpetrated. And so what do we need to do in the church? We need to preach and teach. And when I talk about preaching, um, going back to what Father Anthony said, um, and maybe Samuel, it's in our congregations where there aren't DACA or where there aren't immigrants. Um, we have to preach about this because there's, there's certainly a biblical component to all this and that's what this is all about. Love God, love neighbor, advocacy and action. So we have to preach about it. Um, in my church prior to coming on staff for the presiding bishop, I was in a, we'll call it an all white church. The only thing that wasn't white in the church was me, my wife, and my three kids. And so, of course, I took on this conversation of DACA. And here's what was interesting about that to me. It was received by many, but there was one family in the church that had actually adopted an Asian young girl that was totally against DACA. They were good friends of mine and they ended up leaving the church. So I share that story because it was a hard story and sometimes we're gonna lose people, but we have to preach the truth. It's about racism and it's about white supremacy and holding others out and we've seen these actions 
over, and we've seen this movie over and over again. The second piece of that is teaching, which I call on a practical level. We have to bring in communities and do what Father Samuel said, um, more community organizing. Have some conversations around these issues. Because I live in the Midwest, and I'm going to tell you, it's a whole different space here. We're not even going to go there. It's much different than on the left coast or the right coast. But I think we have to help and educate people. It's absolutely, in my view, ridiculous to me to begin with that we would even consider the possibility of sending 700 plus folks home. I'm not even going to stand with that notion at all. Because you know where we got to go? Churches, clergy, laity, to the streets, where we are now, right? Your struggle is my struggle. My struggle is your struggle. It's about justice and it's about racism. And we got to take it to the streets. And in that, we got to preach, teach, and take it to the streets. Uh, and don't stop. Don't give up. Because I'm, I'm not willing at this point to even embrace this notion that the Supreme Court is going to rule um, against this notion. And if they do, that's not the end of the story. That is not the end of the story. So I'm not willing to embrace that right now. But to my clergy out there, um, and I'm speaking of deacons, priests, all of us, this should be top of conversation, particularly in this season where of Pentecost, when we talk in many voices about many things around the church. So that's where I would be. Preach and teach. Understand the biblical context and understand the practical context. And finally, I would say this. We need to Nancy's. I've heard Nancy, and every time I hear Nancy speak, I'm inspired. I'm ready to get up and run out and do something. And some of that's good, and some of it might not be good. And, and Vicki, to you, don't you ever worry about a home, because you got a home in Michigan, too. And so, you know, we need to get the Vickies and the, and the Nancys in places where you haven't been, in the Michigans. And, if, and when this COVID thing lets up, and we get back to work, I will work with Father Anthony and Samuel to get you all in the places and spaces where I am so people can hear, you know? And so oftentimes we find ourselves speaking to the choir, we need to speak to the masses. And so um, you can count on that, that I will work with my colleagues so that we can get you out there and get your voice heard. Because, you know, people are reasonable people and you see them now, people are waking up. We know change takes time, but we can't give up. And we got to stay, stay the course. So um, there's a lot the church can do, but I would start with those areas in our pulpits, speaking truth to power, call it what it is, and teach. Um, with that, I'm going to invite um, my colleague in, um, um, the Reverend Dr. Reverend Cannon, Dr. Fred Vergara. Um, Thank you, Ron. I think I echo most, if not all, of what you said. Um, as I was doing the intercession, uh, drafting the intercession for today, that those were the kind of things that are happening in my mind. Uh, that, first of all, uh, the moral and ethical framework on which we operate should first of all 
pray that the DACA stay. And then maybe, and then I think in some way it gave me hope that the Supreme Court did not do any opinion ruling at this time. Uh, and who knows, there is a hand of God that uh, guides our destiny. Uh, so prayer is number one that I've been doing. And I've been doing a lot of praying and teaching every week via uh, uh, Facebook Live about, about what's happening in our world. And I have a white parish that I have constantly educate again and again about these wrong narratives that white racism has really uh, been for a long, long time since 400 years ago in the era of slavery and lynching. So uh, resistance vis-a-vis uh, -vis sanctuary. Our diocese of Long Island is also like LA. It's a sanctuary diocese. And we have had some of the people who are, you know, uh, chased or by the ice that have that we have harbored and uh, you know kept. Now, the process of education is very important uh, because, as I said earlier, American racism breeds on false narrative. You know the narrative of slavery is founded on the basis of there is a superior race, the white race. And the rest of the other races and colors are secondary or subhuman. You know, if you could just see, you know, one of the things that really kind of uh, educated me when I, but last October, we went to Montgomery, Alabama, and went to that museum of slavery and lynching. And, you know, you could not imagine how a human being or how human beings can inflict such pain and agony and injustice to a, another people unless they have that kind of narrative in their minds. So the false narrative of white racism, of white uh, supremacy must be eradicated. The second thing is that this, uh, as Nancy said about this manifest destiny. My country, the Philippines, is one of the beneficiary or victims of, uh, you know, manifest destiny. Just after our revolution from Spain, we thought we had a independence and the Americans came over and took over using that manifest destiny that they, you know, Oit McKinley's, the benevolent assimilation was actually founded on uh, manifest destiny. And only, I remember only Mark Twain who said that, you know, we could not let the eagle, the, the American eagle put his talons everywhere, not really, uh, not, to, not really to grant independence and freedom or even teach democracy, but actually to control the people because they are the superior race and this, it is sanctioned by God, manifest destiny. So in the church, which in fact, our history of our own church, we were complicit with all those kinds of wrong narratives. And so we 
our task is really to dismantle not only the structures of injustice, but beginning with the structure of changing this false narrative. And so uh, uh, I remember that in, in, in our experience as a Filipino, when we came to the United States, the first uh, Filipinos who came here, we were at the time a, a neo-colony of the United States. And then we came uh, with farm workers and they also suffered a lot of uh, racism. And uh, one of them, um, who is Carlos Belusen, said a vision of America is in the heart. Uh, America is in the heart and not in the outward form. Uh, and so when I was, you know, just drafting that prayer, I said, what is the difference between DACA and tourists and immigrants and refugees in this country? Now, I think the main difference is that the tourists have their own country. The, the immigrants have chosen their own country. The refugees did not choose which states to live, but they were brought here and they have their own country. I think the DACA, as, as I'm studying it and I'm learning from you know, Nancy and the others, this is the country that they know. In a sense, they really have no country to go back because they were brought here as children. And this is the only, so in other words, bring them back to Philippines, bring them back to, to Mexico, bring them back to El Salvador. That's not bringing them back. It is actually banishing them from the country that they know, the country that they grew up, that this is their country. You know, I'm, I, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a US citizen. I go through immigration, but I know I have a country when I want to die in my own country, I go back to Philippines. I want to, you know, stay on my old age there. That is my country, original country. This is my adopted country. But the DACA, this is their country. They grew up here. And so to say, deport them, it's not deportation. It is basically banishing them to a world, to a country that they do not know, that they, they do not belong. This is their country. The only difference, of course, is they don't have the paper. And I think we need to a lot of re-education. And, and I, you know, almost daily I'm praying for chains of heart, you know, this country was founded on uh, at least uh, the framers of the Constitution on a moral and ethical framework that is Christian. But it is not behaving so because there is that nagging false narrative, especially the white racism. So, you know, why are all these things happen? You know, Ron and I and the others are talking about, you know, uh, uh, was this uh, George Floyd could have died of COVID because he was infected. He had also heart a problem. He could have died, but his death from COVID or his death from heart failure would mean nothing. Why did God allow these things to happen? There is a purpose. And I think having a moral and ethical framework in your mind that is Christians, you could only see that there is a hand. There is a hand that guides our destiny and the destiny of this nation as a, you know, as America is in the heart. 
And I and I think that is the one that I you know we have to struggle, and you know and and I I think I would be part of the resistance if if that happens that the DACA would eventually be. But I'm praying that this person in the White House would eventually be changed and things can hopefully you know can hopefully have uh, uh, you know a little hope at least there will be a there will be a hope. Uh, so this. You know, in some way, this may be a blessing that the Supreme Court did not make a ruling, and hopefully, they will not make a ruling until after November. Uh, you know, so that's that's my kind of uh, my my crazy thinking about it. But I really think that, uh, as I said, these are the DACA are not non-Americans; they are Americans. This is the country that they know, and. If DACA is eliminated and they say, are sent somewhere else, they are actually being banished from the country that they know. Thank you so much, Fred, and um, all of our panelists. It's been so important to, to hear from you today. Fred, I'm wondering um, if for time's sake, would you be willing to lead us in the prayer now and then we'll transition to Rashad? Okay, is the and prayer there or? The prayer is in the script. Did you? Okay. Did you? Um, I I have the uh, I have my draft, but which part should I not read? But I think. Let me. That's okay. I'll share it on the screen, so then the attendees can also read the responses. Yes, sure. So just give me one moment. Thank you. Yeah, of course. Just one moment. I have it ready here. I will share my screen, and attendees, the responses to each petition are here. Our prayer. So Fred, I will turn it over to you. Okay. Brothers and sisters in Christ and uh, to all those uh, of, of all religions, we are all children of God. Let us join in prayer for the migrants and immigrants, especially the DACA re recipients in this country. Almighty and ever-living God, who through your well-beloved Son has given us the promise of abundant life on earth and eternal life in heaven, and who through the Holy Spirit has given us comfort and strength. We pray for the migrants and immigrants, especially the dreamers in this country, the DACA in the United States. We pray that you give them assurance that you will never leave them nor forsake them as they seek your blessings in this land. Lord, in your mercy. Hear our prayer. Lord, the dreamers were brought to this country by their parents when they were children. The past government, had given them work authorization and the temporary relief from deportation. But the current administration rescinded the DACA program and the matter has now come before the Supreme Court for ruling. Lord, this is the only country that the, drummers, that the dreamers consider home. Turn the hearts of the justices of the Supreme Court that instead of ruling for their <coughs> deportation, they would rule in favor of their protection. Lord, in your mercy. Here In these times of corona pandemic, we pray that you keep them safe and protect them from any infection that may cause them harm. We pray for their families, the parents and their children, and all those who care for them. We also pray for those who are homeless, jobless, and those who have no one to care for them. Lord, in your mercy. Hear our prayer. In these times of civil unrest and Cry out, crying out for justice. We pray that immigrant rights be included in the common struggle for justice, equality, and prosperity, especially 
for the rights of the DACA. We pray that their hope of becoming integral parts of American society will be fulfilled in your own time. Lord, in your mercy. Hear our prayer. We also pray for, this, for those who are here on temporary protected status. Many of them are Salvadorans, Hondurans, Asians, Liber Liberians, and Tibetans who came to this country fleeing persecutions or because they were displaced as victims of various <coughs> calamities. We pray that the Supreme Court, Court also rules in favor of their continued stay and welfare. Lord, in your mercy. Hear our prayer. We seek for divine protection for these refugee children and often who are often alone and afraid and vulnerable, being exploited even by human traffickers. Give us courage to stand up for their defense against those who would do them harm. Lord, in your mercy. Hear our prayer. Grant us the courage and the wisdom to defend the poor, the oppressed, and the marginalized in this country. Grant us the spirit of collaboration and solidarity with all those who are seeking for change in the systemic racism, inequality, and social injustice plaguing this country. Break down the walls of our separation from you, O God, and from one another. Lord, in your mercy. Hear our prayer. Guide the leaders of this nation, especially the President of the United States, the members of Congress, the Senate, the Supreme Court, governors, legislators, judges, and all those who make and enforce the law of the land. Turn their hearts for love and mercy, for justice and compassion. Give them wisdom that they may choose what is right, what is just, and what is reasonable. Make them bridge builders and advocates of peace and justice, and at makers of walls of hatred, bigotry, and prejudice. Lord, in your mercy. Here. From the vision of the framers of the United States Constitution, this country was destined to become a shining ex example of e pluribus unum, from many to one. While it was first referred to the unity of many different states, it has now become a rally rallying cry for the unity and diversity from the many nations that have come to this country, from many nations in the world, from many cultures of the earth, from many dreams of humanity, the hope for the United States is to be a single people, ruled by peace, feasting in freedom, and respecting the dignity of every human being. Help us to embrace this vision of our common humanity and be able to preach and teach it, that we may all become a beacon of hope for the world. All this we ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Thank you so much, Fred and panelists. We're going to quickly transition to the advocacy background for today's um, content. And I'm going to turn it over to Rashad. So Rashad, just give me one moment to pull up the right mm -hmm. spot. All righty. So um, we're going to begin with an overview of the DACA issue. Uh, first of all, the quest for a legal settlement for undocumented people brought to the United States as children has been long and circuitous. The first DREAM Act was proposed nearly 20 years ago by Democratic Senator Dick Durbin of Illinois and Republican Senator Orrin Hatch of Utah. 
There have been several windows of opportunity to pass the DREAM Act in the years since, including at the beginning of the Obama administration, but each time the effort has failed. Um, President Obama and congressional Democrats attempted to pass the DREAM Act um, at several points during the first two years of his presidency, but they were never able to overcome the 60 vote filibuster um, threshold in the Senate. And that's what led to the creation of the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals or DACA program, which uses the president's powers of prosecutorial discretion to shield much of the dreamer population from deportation, in addition to granting work authorization to DACA recipients. As of today, more than 700,000 individuals currently have DACA status. So why is DACA needed? Um, I think you need me to tell you because our panelists um, provided such a good response to this question, but um, it's important to sit back and reflect on the urgent necessity of providing legal protections for undocumented individuals brought to the United States as children. Um, if you think about it for a second, these are folks who had absolutely no say in the decision to come to our country. And once they arrived here, they attended our schools, played on our sports teams, befriended our children, became part of the fabric of our lives and our communities. They grew up as American as you or I, as our two panelists so aptly demonstrate. Then when they got to age 18, many of them as their classmates and friends look forward to higher education and joining the workforce these documented individuals realized that the path for them would be much more challenging. In many states, undocumented youth can't legally seek employment um, uh, or cannot enjoy, I'm sorry, cannot enjoy in-state tuition, uh, the in-state tuition discount that is enjoyed by every other resident. And without DACA, you can't legally seek employment to support yourself and your family. Many states don't even allow undocumented individuals to obtain driver's licenses. The stress and precarity of these challenges alone are enough to wear down the constitution of anybody, but add on top of all of this, the constant fear of being deported back to the country of your birth, um, the country that, that for um, undocumented youth, they, they don't even know. They may have few or no familial or social connections in their birth country. Um, many undocumented youth no longer even speak the language of their birth country. To deport these individuals, given these circumstances, would be an act of profound injustice. Now let's dive into the current administration's actions with regard to DACA. Firstly, we should note that while President Trump has taken a profoundly anti-immigration stance in most areas, he has constantly signaled his willingness to, or repeatedly signaled his willingness to provide protections to the DACA population. He has stated his support for legislation that would include a path to legalization for DREAMers uh, but the devil is always in the details. His conditions for supporting DREAM Act type legislation um, have, has also included a number of profoundly draconian elements. Um, those of us on the pro-immigration team would consider poison pills. But nonetheless, he has never said that he wants to deport most DREAMers. He has, however, said that he believes President Obama exceeded his executive authority when he created the DACA program. That is why in September 2017, President Trump rescinded President Obama's executive order, effective from six months um, on from September 2017, and called on Congress to enact a permanent solution to the problem. A variety of pro-DACA groups immediately filed suit against the president in court, arguing that the manner in which President Trump moved to terminate DACA was illegal. Lower courts partially enjoined the president's action by permitting those who currently have DACA to maintain the status 
and to allow for renewals while the case is being litigated. The Supreme Court heard arguments in the case last fall. Solicitor General Noel Francisco, the, the lawyer for the government, um, said that, and I quote, DACA was a temporary stopgap measure that on its face could be rescinded at any time and the department's reasonable concern about its legality and its general opposition to broad non-enforcement policies provided more than reasonable basis for ending it, unquote. Those are difficult words to read, but the current state of play reminds us how vitally important actual legislation is. Once a law is passed, dreamers will have certainty and security they'll never have under DACA. Now let's discuss, discuss the most recent congressional action to protect dreamers. When the Democrats took control of the House of Representatives in January 2019, they made passage of the DREAM Act one of their top priorities. They accomplished this goal in June 2019 when the DREAM and Promise Act passed the chamber on a bipartisan vote of 237 to 187. This version of the DREAM Act would grant 10-year conditional permanent resident status to undocumented people brought to the country as children, among other things. Unfortunately, in the, actually, it's now been a year since uh, the House's passage the Senate has taken no action on the bill. And that is where we stand to the, literally to the current moment. And given the current situation with the Supreme Court case and the administration's position, we are all fearful that the Supreme Court will invalidate DACA and the administration will put documented individuals in the queue for deportation. Um, and that's a horrible outcome that we hope to avert by our actions um, in the coming weeks. So now let's explore how you can be an advocate. Um, what is advocacy? Let's talk about the concept of political advocacy. In a nutshell, um, advocacy is sharing your views with politicians to encourage them to take a particular course of action. It's a fundamental element of liberal democracy. Politicians work for you, not the other way around. They have an obligation to hear your views and respond to them. Advocacy is explicitly protected in the US Constitution under the First Amendment's prohibition on laws abridging the right to petition the government for redress of grievances. Liberty is a beautiful thing. Now, what about faith-based advocacy? For one, it most certainly is constitutional. Uh, see the First Amendment's free exercise clause. It is also important to recall that religion has played an absolutely crucial role in a wide array of social justice movements across American history, from the anti-slavery movement in the 19th century to the civil rights movement in the 20th century to the immigrant rights movement today. And, and to Black Lives Matter um, and, and other modern civil rights movements. People of faith are people of conscience and the values we bring to the table rooted in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ have the power to change the world for the better. We must take our seat at the table and stand for our values in the public square. Your voice as a person of faith matters. The Episcopal Church has long supported advocacy on immigration issues, especially in support of dreamers. Welcoming immigrants is a bedrock element of our faith. And as we engage in our shared life as Americans, we seek to play a positive role in making our society a safe and welcoming home for newcomers. In September 2017, when President Trump announced his decision to end DACA, 125 Episcopal bishops signed an open letter to the President and Congress, urging them to protect dreamers. As the letter said, and I quote, in recent years, our congregations throughout the United States have witnessed firsthand the benefits that the Young Dreamers have brought to our community programs and life. We've been inspired by and gained much from their American spirit, unquote. The Episcopal Church's General Convention has also passed several resolutions in support of Dreamers. The faith community at large has long been, have long been leaders in this space and are vital partners in addressing 
this issue. So given the current physical distancing and stay-at-home orders we currently face within the COVID-19 pandemic, we in the church have had to resort to creative new ways to engage Episcopalians in advocacy around a variety of issues, including DACA. Even in the midst of this most unusual time, the work goes on to seek justice for immigrants. There are many ways we can engage our lawmakers without being physically in their presence. We can make phone calls, send emails, or write postcards, for instance. These are all really important elements of advocacy. Um, as you engage in advocacy, either by phone or email or postcard, there are three things you want to tell your congressional leaders, who you are, why you care, and what you want. Each of these elements is important. They, they need to know your backstory, where you're from, and very importantly, whether or not they represent you. They also need to know why this issue is important to you, what motivates you to care enough to send a postcard or to pick up the phone and call them. They also need, need to know, crucially, what specific action you want them to take in relation to the issue. You should always lobby with a specific ask for the lawmaker. Um, social media advocacy is also very important to elevate the issue among those in your networks that follow you on your social media platforms. Um, we encourage you to post photos of your action on social media using the hashtags Episcopal Advocacy, Home is Here, and Faith for DACA. And we will be sharing a um, DACA Action Day social media toolkit for tweet suggestions as well. Thank you, Rashad. Um, we also wanted to mention that one of the things that you can do is practice advocacy with your family. Um, the first step would be discussing DACA with your family, explaining why the issue matters to you. And then together as a family, you can draft a letter or a postcard, including pictures, your children color or draw, expressing why DACA is important to your family and why you are advocating support for DACA. And one of the most powerful ways you can show up and learn to help in this moment is by identifying and following local leaders and organizations that are involved in this work. And all of the organizations that are listed on this slide offer resources, education, and opportunities for you to make donations and advocate. And we will include these organizations and their direct links in the follow-up email. Thank you so much. I wanna commend Rashad for sharing so much important information so quickly due to our time. Thank you so much. And Kendall, I do think we have a little bit of time to do some Q&A, so I'm gonna turn it over to you to facilitate that and invite the panelists to turn on their cameras if they'd like to respond to any questions. Thank you, Allison. Um, so the first question is, what I am hearing from some economics is that what this country needs is everybody working, not just citizens, not just the privileged. That is the only thing that can make this country work as far as I'm concerned. What do you think might help our governments, federal, state, or local, recognize this? I, I can take that one. Um, just from an ad, advocacy perspective, um, you know, politicians are usually very much concerned about getting people to work. Um, that's a that's a very normal thing because the more people you have working, the more people you have paying taxes, the better it is for um, government to be able to finance the the services and programs that government finances. I think the difficulty with the issue of immigration, and, and I just say this as someone who is in Washington, D.C., meeting with lawmakers all the time and has to be very attuned to the political realities, is that um, when it comes to immigration, economic data is absolutely meaningless to changing minds. Um, if, if it were meaningful, then our government's policy would be 100% pro-immigrant because all the data shows that immigrants are um, 
a massive boon to the economy. Um, the, the, their, their work ethic, their entrepreneurship, um, the, the taxes they pay, so especially undocumented immigrants, for instance, who, who um, pay into Social Security but will never reap the benefits of it, are supporting senior citizens. I mean, there are just a million economic arguments for why immigration is 100% positive for the country. But the issue is, is that um, people don't care because um, white supremacy is a hell of a drug, essentially. <laughs> um, uh, when, when your concern is more about the, the culture changing or you know, discomfort about people speaking a foreign language or you know, too many people with not, who don't share your, your ethnic background or your culture being in the country, then you can throw all the economic data you want at, at someone, but it won't matter because their concern is not rooted in economics. And I wish more people who um, are in this space would recognize that, honestly. But the economic data is important. It's important to know the truth about um, immigrants. When, when people who are opposed to immigration say things about immigrants' economic contributions or their use of, um, of public assistance programs and all that sort of thing that are just not true. It's good to know that information, but at root, it's not really about the numbers. It's not really about money. It's not really about economics. It's about morality. If I might just add to a bit to what Rashad said, I think too, politicians care about the economy, but they also care about getting elected right there at the top. And so part of what we talked about and that you've put forward is we have to get constituents involved. People that are, pa are passionate and care about this issue as we do, to um, you know, bring in outside voices, not just within our congregations or in our church, but outside voices, right? And to move them towards action because, and powerful voices, one of the notes I took for parents for the conversation today, is we have to bring together people of goodwill with power. That's what will make change. And so I just wanted to add that addendum, Rashad. They, they care a lot about getting elected. And if, and if we can make it an issue and, and that will impact them directly, we could probably move forward with some change. Thank you, Ron. The next question I wanted to address, someone asked, if DACA does not have a path to citizenship, what does that path look like for DACA recipients? I can uh, take that one as well, just from a policy perspective. So. Basically, um, all it would take to grant documented individuals a path to citizenship is Congress passing a bill. Like, that's literally all it would take. They, they just need to have the, the, the will to do it, essentially. Um, because Congress has authority over naturalization and citizenship, it's in the Constitution. Um, so, the, the fault in all of this lies with Congress. And as I mentioned in my, my spiel, they've been trying to pass legislation for 20 years to, to provide a path to citizenship and protections for dreamers. But every, every time it's, it's come up, it's just not gone through. Um, so it, unfortunately, that's the, that's the situation. But really all it takes is Congress passing a bill. That's it. So that's why we need you to press your members of Congress to support legislation to protect dreamers and give them path to citizenship. Rashad, and our last question, I'm sure a few of you might like to speak to. Um, how do we get our parishes to make the connection that anti-immigrant attitudes are also examples of racism? 
How do you see systemic racism different for blacks versus immigrants? Uh, I'd like to share a little bit. Uh, my, I have a, a, I have a parish that is right now in Long Island that is maybe like 75% white. It used to be 100% white. When I was there, there, there are new Indian and Chinese and Latinos who have joined. But if we look at our church basically moving to the direction of a new ethos, I think with our, you know, presiding bishop leading this change in the attitude of the church, we may lose a few members, but we may gain more members in terms of, and if we have, say, just trying, if we have 2.5 million people uh, in all of the United States who are proponents of this new morality, of this new moral and ethical framework, then we could make a change. Uh, so I think, I, you know, um, the, the, the history of this country has always been, especially to the immigrants, is sometimes open and sometimes closed. When there is a preponderant uh, uh, attitudes and feelings, and feelings is hard to change. Uh, it's hard to educate feelings. But if there are more people feeling it uh, at, in changing the, the, the structure of injustice in our church, there will also be a continuing change the, 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 the history of most revolutionary change often does not come from the system. It does not come from the institution. It always comes from a group of people who are enlightened and begins to push, just like the uh, Black Lives Matter. I think this is, this is getting, getting reverberating in terms of people changing values, changing attitudes. And I think uh, I, you know, I'm an eternal optimist and I still believe that you know, no matter how hard a structure is, it will change. But, the, but our our part in this is simp is basically to do our part is the 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 education and changing of uh, of the this framework that we said earlier the wrong narratives that have long been plaguing racism in this country. I just want to tag on a, a little bit to Fred too. You know when you. Think about Black Lives Matter. I think the shift that is coming about is moving it from sympathy to empathy, right? And so I think here that's where we want to move the conversation. Um, racism is here. It's here to stay. I'm sorry to be the one to tell you that it's here to stay. But as we move more people to a space of empathy, then they will work in, in collaboration and in, in sync with what, 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 what is appropriate, what is a moral responsibility, what is a Christian responsibility. And so I think we have to appeal to that level of empathy. I mean, I think that's what you're seeing now with the movement, right? People are still going back to their locales, but I think, as Fred said, they're feeling it. They're feeling it in a different way. It's, it's no longer just, I'm sorry, but I understand. I can put myself in, in, in the other person's shoes. And so I think that's what's shifting the narrative with Black Lives Matter. And I think that's what's going to shift the narrative with DACA as well. Uh, just re um, really quickly, I think that we have to take a really close look at our sacred texts 
and look at our prophets. Our prophets were not very liked in their communities. Our prophets spoke hard truths and people left. I think as people of faith, we'd be like our prophets from our sacred texts and speak those hard truths. Call it out for what it is. We talk about racial reconciliation. There, can, there cannot be reconciliation until there is truth. And the truth is that we have a system that dehumanizes human beings if they're not white or wealthy. Because we need to include our poor brothers and sisters because they are also being dehumanized. So in our parishes, we need to be able to have those very uncomfortable conversations with our well-meaning older congregants who don't get it. And we need to bring it up over and over and over again. Like Ron said earlier today, we need to preach, we need to teach, and we need to take it to the streets. If we're not willing to do that, if we as leaders do not do that, how do we expect our congregations to follow or to do it themselves? It needs to start with us and it needs to start with uncomfortable conversations and call it out. And we need to be careful that we do not fall into this very vicious circle of pitting people of color against one another. Because they're like, well, I support Black Lives Matter, but I don't know how I feel about immigration. No, if you support Black Lives Matter, you support immigration. And if you support immigration, you will fight. So there's justice for all the uh, people, the trans people, of, trans people of color who are being murdered. You will also fight for justice and peace for all those missing and murdered Native American women that nobody talks about. So we need to be able to say those things, say them from the pulpit, say them from wherever it is. We need to be able to call people up to task because it is our responsibility as people of faith. It is our calling. We need to be go going out there and bringing the kingdom of God here and now and not waiting for some heaven to come. No, it comes now. We need to fight for it now. And it involves everyone. So start dusting off your voice box and start calling out the truth because that's what we need you to do. Yeah, can I, can I also add something? Um, these past days I have been meditating in, in Genesis 4.10 uh, with the question, what have you done? The voice of your brothers, blood is crying to me from the ground. And it has been just struck to me. Um, I think that we are all challenged to strive for justice and peace and to understand that faith is not just a feeling that we've, the, something emotional that we go on Sundays and feel, but faith is actually the way we live. So actions are very important. It's not just the nice beauty hymn that we sung on Sunday, but those baby steps that we do to change our lives and to change the lives of the people who are around us. Thank you all so much. Um, what a what an important time we've we've spent together this afternoon. I'm going to quickly transition us to close out. So please know, attendees, um, we are going to send an email to you this evening. It'll be in your inboxes in about two hours. You'll have the toolkit that we spoke about, the action alert. We are asking you to call your senators using the script that you'll find in the toolkit. Um, a few other things you'll see in the follow-up email include our EMM book club resources, which you can use in your congregation for education, for starting these hard conversations. We also have a podcast called Hometown, 
where we will be publishing the audio from this webinar and from many other webinars and other events that we offer. So please do check that out. Finally, we do encourage you to sign up for the remaining two webinars in this series. You can sign up for both of them at bit.ly forward slash June advocacy. And those links will be in your email as well. We want to thank you so much for joining us today, for being, um, being with us through the end. We know we've gone a little bit past 5 p.m. Eastern, but we're grateful for your time, panelists. Um, I hope you hear the gratitude in my voice, and I know that everyone listening is raising their hands in applause. Thank you for your time, for your graciousness, for your generosity. Um, peace be with all of you. Keep up the good work, and goodbye. Listeners, thank you so much for joining us today. We pray that you will feel moved to explore the resources that were shared during the webinar and that are currently in the podcast notes. Just look at your podcast feed so that you can join us in advocacy for dreamers. We invite you to join us for the next two webinars in our series. Episcopal Action on Resettlement is June 16th at 3.30 p.m. Eastern Time, and Episcopal Action on Asylum is June 23rd at 3.30 p.m. Eastern Time. You can register at bit.ly forward slash June Advocacy. This information will also be available in the podcast notes and on the EMM website. Please consider making a donation to support the Refugee Resettlement Ministry of the Episcopal Church. You can visit episcopalmigrationministries.org forward slash give or text hometown to 91999 to make your gift today. Thank you for joining us today, listeners. Until next time, peace be with you and all those you consider home. 